Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26, is the word of God for us here this morning. The Bible says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away to deliver him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See, do it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified! And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. So you do it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, this text has so much, so much that we need to be thinking about. So much horror, so much glory. Help us to handle it well, see it well, learn from your word. 
God, we need grace, we need strength, we need Christ. Help us to be a people of the Lord Jesus. And let this text guide us that direction. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're continuing this morning walking with Jesus to the cross. Jesus, God the Son, came to this earth to save a people for God. He came to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice, and to rise victorious, defeating death. And as we pick up the story, those final acts of Jesus' earthly ministry, they're so very close. This morning, we will watch as three separate scenes unfold, and in each of the scenes, we'll see that Jesus is innocent of the accusations that have been made against him. We're going to see that Jesus is willingly shaping events so that he does get to the cross. And in the scenes this morning, we're going to see a set of people who think that they can somehow make up for their own wrongs by themselves. And at the end, we'll be left with the very question Pilate asks, what will we do? What should we do with Jesus? So let's get started. We'll look at the scenes. We'll make some observations along the way. One of you said that I always do three points or five points. We're going to have three scenes and five observations. So there. Scene number one is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Verses one and two reads, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So, it's Friday morning. Last night, Jesus was illegally put on trial twice. Once before Annas, again the second time before Caiaphas. And in both of the trials, the religious leaders broke nearly every regulation they had on the books for proper procedure in a hearing. But once the Jews decided on early, the wee hours of Friday morning, what, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., something like that, they decided Jesus was worthy of death. They put him in a place where he could wait for daylight. And then, giving a nod, at least, to following one of their laws correctly, they reconvene the Sanhedrin in the proper room in the temple so they can have a third hearing, a sentencing hearing. And in rapid fashion, this would have taken only moments, they declare Jesus ought to be executed. But the Jewish court does not have the legal right to execute anybody under Roman rule, so they had to send Jesus for a trial before the Roman governor if they want him to be legally executed. So, you can just imagine just the tiniest bit of light is starting to mark the horizon. Maybe, maybe just barely past 5 a.m., this court declares Jesus should be executed, and they rush him off for a trial before Pontius Pilate. Now, we can make two observations right here. Observation number one, and this one will come back more than once. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. One bit of evidence that Jesus is innocent can be arrived at simply by considering the behavior of the Sanhedrin over the three trials that have now concluded. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they would have dearly loved to have one single, clear, established, witnessed offense 
of which they could accuse Jesus. Just one. If they had one clear crime they could accuse Jesus with, they would have paraded Jesus out in front of the people. They would have made a show of the trial. They would have shown in public, I told you this was a bad guy, he's guilty. And they would have loved trying to turn his followers against him. Why do they do it in secret? Because they couldn't. They resort to shady tactics and law-breaking to get a farce of a conviction in a mockery of a trial. Observation number two, you cannot cover your own sin. You cannot cover your own sin. It's interesting here, we see the Jews at the sentencing hearing making sure that it takes place in the morning and in public. It's like that will somehow make up for the rules that they're breaking or the fact that they're about to murder an innocent man. But friends, doing one little right action does not make up for the evil and injustice of this court. And we'll see time and time again this morning that people are going to try to assuage their own guilt by one action or another. But listen, only God can forgive your sin and only God can cover your guilt. So now let's move to scene two. It's Judas and the religious leaders. Look at verse three through five. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Matthew here shifts the scene for us to show us the end of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Sometime during the events that we've been studying, sometime during that night, Judas realizes Jesus is going to die. And it horrifies Judas. We can't say what was happening in Judas's mind here. He was certainly feeling guilt. He had, after all, committed the worst individual crime in human history. He had betrayed the Son of God to death. But there's something about Judas finally seeing it happen, seeing that Jesus is going to die. It's more than Judas can bear. And Matthew says, Judas, do you see the wording there changed his mind? If you have a different translation, you might have repented there. It's a very interesting Greek word behind there. I, I won't give you lots of words. You know that I don't try to do that. But the Greek word behind the word changed his mind is the Greek word metamelamai. And it's a biblical word for repenting. It's one of the three or four Greek words used and translated repent. But it's not the word that is generally translated as a change of mind. Metamelamai is a word that means to regret or to feel sorrow over something. 
It, it means to feel something new, a sadness you didn't feel before. So yes, it's true Judas had a mental change, but his change is primarily a sorrowful regret. It is not a full-fledged repentance, and it's surely not a saving repentance, which we're about to see. So Judas goes to the priests, the people that used him to get to Jesus, and with a troubled heart, Judas points out he has sinned by betraying innocent blood. I would bet you that Judas knows that Deuteronomy 27, 25 actually reads, Cursed be anyone, cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. That's pretty specific, wouldn't you say? Well, for their part, the priests don't care in the least. They tell Judas, you got to go deal with that yourself. They're cold, they're evil, they care nothing about the man that they used, they got their way with Judas, they got what they wanted from him, they don't care about him. So Judas, in a fit of grief, throws the bag of coins down somewhere in the temple and he runs away. Judas gets no pleasure, he gets no gain from his ill-gotten reward. Now, observation number three here. Sin never delivers. Observation three, sin never delivers. Judas was tempted. Judas was eventually possessed by the devil. Clearly, though, Judas thought he was going to get something from this. He thought there was going to be gain for what he was doing. But as soon as the devil got what he wanted out of Judas, the betraying disciple is emotionally shredded and left hopeless. Do you understand that the devil will always promise you things that will ultimately leave you empty? See, sin seems like a good idea at the time. That thing I would take that I shouldn't have, it seems really sweet. That thing that I would do that I shouldn't do, it promises me great pleasure, and it may give me that pleasure for a moment. You know what? Thinking that I'm smart enough to outsmart all the stupid Christians around me who are telling me things are true that I know better than they know because I'm smarter than them may make me feel big and strong. But when it's all said and done, when the light of day shines on our evil choices, like Judas, we're left full of emptiness, regret, and guilt. Be honest with me. How many of you know what that feels like? So what does Judas do with his guilt? He goes out into the night, and he hangs himself. Judas commits suicide. He believes there's no hope for his forgiveness. Judas will not approach Jesus to ask for grace. And Judas goes out and he takes his own life. What was observation number two? I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. You cannot cover your own sin. 
Judas might have thought that the only thing he could do that would be bad enough was to punish himself for his own crime. Maybe, I don't know, we're speculating here. But you know what, friends? Taking his own life would do nothing to cover Judas's guilt before God. Judas's action may indeed have been a last horrible, desperate move to try to, I don't know, get away from what he was feeling or something, but all Judas did was step out of the pain of the present guilt and land himself directly into the fires of hell. And let me be clear, Judas is in hell because as a sinner, at no point in his life did Judas repent of his sin and entrust his soul to Jesus asking for mercy. Judas never came to Jesus in faith for salvation. Judas opposed God from the beginning to the end of his life. Judas might have tried to pay his own penalty for his sin. Maybe, I don't know. But the point is, Judas is in hell because of his lack of bowing the knee to God. He is not in hell for the sin of suicide. Now, suicide is a sin. You do need to know that. Self-murder is a sin before God, but that's not what damned Judas. A lack of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what did that. Look at 6 through 10. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price upon him, or the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Don't you love these religious guys? Are you not feeling warm toward them right now? These guys were willing to take money from the temple treasury to bring about the death of an innocent man. But they wouldn't put that same money back in the treasury because they knew it was tainted. By the way, that points us back to observation number one. Does anybody remember what that one is? Jesus was innocent. These guys knew that they had taken part in the murder of an innocent man. It's blood money. The religious leaders used that money that Judas dropped in the temple. They decided, well, we'll purchase a field outside of Jerusalem. It was called the potter's field. Maybe it was a field that it had a lot of clay that you could get out of it to, to make your pottery. But, but now this field is going to become a cemetery for strangers who died in Jerusalem. A little sort of a field that's a cemetery of the unknowns. And Matthew says that this move by the Jews fulfills a prophecy, and he cites Jeremiah. This is a touch problematic, by the way. There are a few references in the book of Jeremiah where a potter is mentioned. Chapter 18, chapter 19. Also, Jeremiah purchases a field in chapter 32. But none of those passages read exactly like this. The themes that are happening here can be seen there, but the passages don't read like this. The closest passage in the Old Testament to what Matthew quotes here is Zechariah chapter 11, 
verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. See how similar it sounds. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Similar, right? Now, in the passage in Zechariah, and it's a weird little passage, the prophet Zechariah at this point in the, in the book had been frustrated. He had tried to lead the people of God with righteousness and with tenderness, but he had been rejected by the people. And as a result of that rejection, the people are going to suffer in two ways. Uh, Zechariah symbolizes it by the breaking of two separate staffs, one named favor, one named union. He says to the people that because of what they've done, because of their rejection of him, they will suffer having evil leaders who will take advantage of them and abuse them. And they're going to, as a nation, lose the promise of God's favor and protection. And both of those results are happening in Israel as this passage is unfolding. So why does Matthew say that this is from Jeremiah? Does that not sound weird to you? There are two simple possibilities here. Perhaps Matthew points to Jeremiah because he also wants you to get the potter theme of Jeremiah 19 and the field-buying language of Jeremiah 32. There is precedent in the Gospels of mingling two prophecies together, and only when you do that citing the major prophet. If you look at Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, there is a conflation of prophecies from Malachi and from Isaiah. More words are there from Malachi, but Mark says this is what Isaiah said. So that happens. But the simpler explanation, actually, I think, is that Jeremiah is a pretty doggone big book. You've noticed that before, right? You ever try to read Jeremiah? It's a big one. It is a major, if not the major, book in the Jewish scriptures, the section called the Nebaim, or the prophets, right? The Jews divided their Bible, their, their scriptures into law, prophets, writings, Tanakh, and the middle is the Nebaim, which is the, the prophets. If he cites Jeremiah, the one thing you know for sure is which of those three sections to go to. So that could be what he's up to, telling them what major section it's in. I'll tell you this, though. Matthew's not making a mistake. But we can use that passage from, from Zechariah and the quotation to make one more observation here. Observation number four, Christ fulfills Scripture. Observation four, Christ fulfills scripture. Matthew has shown us time and time and time again that the events surrounding the life of Jesus Christ were promised by God for centuries. God is in control. And all of the Bible, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, points you to the person and the work and the glory of Jesus. And that should make you love Jesus, and it should make you love the Bible, every bit of the Bible, beginning to end even more. Let's go to the third scene so we can get 
through here. Um, it's Jesus before Pilate. Verses 11 through 14. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. If you, uh, if you read all four of the Gospels and try to put the crucifixion and the trials of Jesus together, what you learn is that on this Friday morning, Jesus stands trial first before Pilate, then before Herod, before again returning to Pilate. Jesus has three Roman civil trials, just as he had three Jewish religious trials. But Matthew, inspired by God here, truncates this all into one scene. The other gives us one scene that kind of includes it all. Well, the Jewish religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, but they find out pretty quickly that they're not able to just tell Pilate, hey, Pilate, do us a favor and kill this guy for us. Pilate actually wants a charge. So they decide that they will accuse Jesus of setting himself up as an opponent of the Roman government. That's why Pilate asked Jesus, are you in fact the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you've said so. That is an affirmative answer. Yes, I am king of the Jews. But, but it's also a reminder for Pilate that Jesus is not claiming an earthly throne the way Pilate is envisioning it. If you read John's gospel, you see that Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. To which that immediately makes Pilate think, you're not a threat. Well, the religious leaders aggressively continue to accuse Jesus before Pilate. Jesus says nothing, again, fulfilling the scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he is silent like a lamb led to slaughter, right? And Pilate is amazed that Jesus is not pleading his case. How many times do you think Pilate heard criminals beg and plead and argue and yell and scrape and fight and cuss and everything else? Jesus just takes it. Observation number five Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. Jesus could have defended himself, couldn't he? Jesus could have told Pilate what he needed to hear so that Pilate would set him free. But Jesus was going to the cross on purpose. He and the Father had planned this from before the dawn of time. So this is the spot, if you're marking your timeline, where Matthew skips over that whole scene of Pilate sending Jesus to Herod, and then Herod returning Jesus to Pilate wearing a splendid royal robe. And Matthew moves on to the very end of the civil trial, trial number three. Look at 15 to 18, he says, Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate 
asked, or Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Or for you, sorry about that. Barabbas, or Jesus, who was called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Pilate understands a couple things here. Pilate understands Jesus is not guilty. In fact, legally, Pilate has pronounced Jesus not guilty multiple times by this point. But he also realizes that the Jews are not going to stop accusing him. So Pilate looks for a way, how do I not execute this innocent man and not make these people really mad at me? Now, if that sounds weird to you, you've got to understand that, that Pontius Pilate was not in a secure position. Two or three times before this, in his reign as governor, Pilate had caused major unrest in Jerusalem because of his choices. Even some rioting had broken out because of things Pilate did related to the Jewish religion. And Pilate knew if he caused one more riot because of the Jewish religion, Caesar might just remove him from his post. And you do need to remember that sometimes when Caesar removes an official from his post, Caesar sometimes removes that man's head from his shoulders. So Pilate wants a smooth way out of what he thinks of as a bad situation. Add to that that it is the time of the Jewish Passover feast. Think about that from Pilate's perspective. The Passover represents the Jewish people celebrating throwing off the chains of an oppressive government and gaining their freedom. A lot of patriotism going on, right? A lot of naturalistic fervor, a lot of anti-Rome zeal. So Pilate says, I'm going to get some goodwill going on. He had a practice for a few years now of releasing to the Jews one, of, one criminal of theirs during the festival. Think of how smart that move is, right? Pilate returns to the population a political prisoner. And the people might think, what a nice guy. But at the same time, that political prisoner that Pilate releases, he's not a threat anymore. He was only freed because of the beneficence of the governor. He's, th th this is a win-win. Pilate gets something he wants, the people get something they want, and everybody stays calm over Passover. Okay, Pilate knows there's a guy scheduled for execution. He's a well-known prisoner. His name is Barabbas, and he was guilty of murder during an insurrection in Jerusalem. So, so what that means is Barabbas was part of a group that got their stuff together and decided they were going to fight and overthrow the government. He killed somebody in the process, failed in the process, got caught and imprisoned by the Romans in the process. So there's nothing about Barabbas that's super desirable to the crowd. So Pilate says, look, they're not going to want Barabbas. But they like Jesus. I mean, it was just last Sunday they were cheering Jesus like crazy five days ago. So Pilate's like, I got it. I'm going to stand the two guys up, right? And ask, which one do you want? And of course they'll pick Jesus, and then I don't have to kill an innocent man, but I'm not putting myself at risk, and I can't, they can't be mad at me, the crowd chose. By the way, how cowardly is this of Pilate? He is spineless, he is refusing to do justice. 
I mean, is this not the, just a beautiful, clear picture of injustice? And one of the ways we know that Pilate is spineless and unjust here, he knows, verse 18 said, that the Jews handed Jesus over out of envy. He knows Jesus is not guilty of a crime. He knows the religious teachers just want Jesus out of the way. That's observation number one. Jesus is innocent. Because, really, think this through with me, friends. Don't you think that if the Jews had even one charge... Don't you think that if Pilate could have found even one charge to hold against Jesus, don't you think he would have just pronounced Jesus guilty, killed him, and gone on with his day? Jesus is innocent. And not even his worst enemies can concoct a charge against him that sticks. And now, and now, the story gets weird. Pilate's got a scheme. He's going to give the crowd a vote. It's popular choice. Jerusalem idol right here. You've got one, you know, which one do you like? You want to vote for this one, vote for that one. This is, it's very clean, clear picture. You guys vote by your voice. You want Jesus, the Christ? We know you like your Christ. Or Barabbas, a real jerk. Pilate knows he's going to win. He knows he's going to win. The religious guys are going to be embarrassed. perfect scheme. Doesn't it sound like a smart scheme? Yeah. But remember observation number five? Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. God is going to provide an interruption into the flow of events that distracts Pilate and changes the whole temperament and tone of the crowd. Look at verses 19 to 20. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today because in a dream. Now, same time, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So get this, okay? Pilate is right in the middle of trying to do governor things. You know what it's like when you're really working and getting stuff done? And he gets... An urgent message from his wife. I don't know that he welcomed this interruption. And Mrs. Pilate has apparently had some really bad dreams about Jesus. She thinks that something major is going on here. She believes Jesus is a righteous man. And she begs her husband, don't have anything to do with this situation. <sighs> I mean, I, I, I get the picture of Pilate going, wait a minute, I've got to deal with this. I don't know how long it took for Pilate to get the message. I don't know how long Pilate thought about the message. But for a moment or two, Pilate's attention is not on the religious leadership and it's not on the crowd. And I think it's during this time that the Jewish religious leaders really begin to persuade the crowd can you imagine the scene? Hey, you see what Pilate's doing, don't you? He likes the Jesus guy. He hates our friend Barabbas. You're not going to side with the Romans, are you? All the Sanhedrin wants Barabbas. All the Sanhedrin is against Jesus. 
Vote for Barabbas. Let's show the governor who's boss. Let's really show him. Let's put his buddy on the cross. Do you see the sovereign hand of God at work here? God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign even over Mrs. Pilate's dreams. That dream came at just the right time to distract Pilate and to allow the leaders to turn the crowd. It worked to fulfill Jesus' mission of going to the cross. 21 to 23 says, The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Huh? I mean, Pilate had to be shocked. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? By the way, why would you ask the mob that question? What do you all think? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So Pilate asks, the crowd votes for Barabbas. Then Pilate asks the question that may be the most important question any human being could ever ask, though Pilate doesn't have any idea. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And the crowd, they work themselves up. They're in a bloodlust. They demand that Jesus be crucified. And Pilate says, why in the world would we do that? The, the crowd doesn't have a reason to offer. They don't know why they're mad at Jesus. They just want blood. Then 24 to 26, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released from them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So guys, things are getting out of hand right now. Pilate is afraid. He cannot afford a riot. He might lose everything if a riot breaks out. So Pilate washes his hand, his hands before the crowds. That could, by the way, if Pilate knew the verse, could be a nod to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Because the leaders of a town who found a dead body near it the leaders were commanded to make a sacrifice and then wash their hands to ask God not to count them as guilty of that death if they don't know who did it and can't catch who did it. Well, Pilate, here in similar fashion, washes his hands and says, hey, I'm not responsible for the shedding of Jesus' blood. Do you guys remember observation number two? You cannot cover your own sin. Pilate thinks that by this little gesture of hand-washing, he can escape responsibility for his actions. Do you guys buy that? I mean, do you think that, hey, I'm about to do something evil, but I'm going to wash my hands first, so therefore it doesn't count? That's worse than my fingers were crossed, so my promise doesn't count, right? No. Pilate is sitting as a judge. He must do justice. He must not allow an angry mob to violate the law of God to have the blood of an innocent man. And a hand washing is not going to cover his sin before God no matter what he says. Then in a moment that displays the utter depravity of the hearts of both the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd, the people say, His blood be on us and on our children. 
Does that not chill you to the bone? These men are eager and willing to accept on their own heads the blood, the guilt, the murder of the Lord Jesus, and they're even willing to allow the consequences of that same act to fall on their own children. This is horrific. Now, I have to say, many people have used that verse. A Jewish crowd voluntarily owning the blood guilt of the murder of the Son of God, they use that as a tool to promote wicked anti-Semitism. But we must remember who avenges on God's behalf. The Lord said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And that generation that stood there and cried that out, maybe even their children, they experienced the unrest of the next several years and they experienced the horror of the destruction of, Je of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. I believe God absolutely did everything that needed to be done to carry out justice on those who opposed him. But listen, the same God who carried out his justice perfectly, the same God who scattered the Jewish nation to the winds after this, that God offers grace to all people, Jews and Gentiles, who repent of their sin and come to Jesus Christ for grace. So we should in no way allow that verse to excuse cruelty to any people. Christians do not attack any people group based on ethnicity. Even if their ethnicity did bad things, we don't hold people accountable for the guilt of their ethnicity. Christians share the gospel with all people, regardless of ethnicity, because we know everybody can be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And Christians welcome all who repent and believe as members of our very family, regardless of ethnicity. We don't say, oh, but you're from the wrong people group. You owe me a lot before I let you in. We do not do that. There's no excuse for anti-Semitism in the Word of God. Then verse 26 tells us, it begins, folks. Pilate had already had Jesus scourged. He releases Jesus to the soldiers at the request of the religious leaders so he, Jesus, can be crucified. And that is where the scene fades for today. We'll pick it up here next time. But before we're done, let's remember some things we've seen. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is the pure, perfect Son of God. Jesus lived out the perfection that God requires for any human being to be acceptable before him. And the good news is Jesus will give his record of perfection to any person he saves. Aren't you glad about that? Would you understand before God with your record or Jesus' record? Right? This is not a hard question, is it? You cannot cover your own sin. Pilate tried by washing his hands. Judas might have tried by punishing himself by taking his own life. The religious tried by doing a couple things right, according to their laws after all this. But nobody can do good deeds and make up for their sin. We must be forgiven by the glorious grace of God. God alone can cover our sin. Speaking of sin, sin never delivers. 
We've all tried it, right? You've given it a go, haven't you? All of us have been convinced at one point or another that sin would give us a thing that we wanted. Freedom, power, ecstasy, satisfaction. We've, we've thought all sorts of stuff. But everyone who is really thinking knows that sin leads to death. Sin promises the ultimate, and it leaves you empty and guilty. It did Judas, and it still does today. And Christ fulfills Scripture. Jesus is the one God has promised would come to earth. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus has been predicted and foreshadowed and revealed. He is the focus of every bit of human history, and he's the focus of every bit of the Word of God, which is why we love every bit of the Word of God. And Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. What did Scripture predict? One would come who would save God's people from their sins, and Jesus lived that perfect life. But that's not all he did. Jesus went to the cross to die as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. He crushed the devil. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And then he rose from the grave. Jesus went to the cross to die for people like you and me. So what do you do? As Pilate asked, what do you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Listen to me. Today is the day you need to decide. Turn away from sin. Reject sin. Hate your sin. Feel sorrow because you've sinned. But unlike Pilate or Judas or the religious, don't try to make up for your sin yourself. You can't do it. Run to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus as your Lord and ask Jesus, Lord Jesus, because you died and rose from the grave to pay for my sins, please have mercy on me. Do that and you'll be saved. And if you have come to Jesus for salvation, which I believe most of us have, glory in Christ. He's perfect. He's been promised in Scripture. He walked to the cross on purpose to pay for your sin. Rest in His grace. Serve Jesus. But don't serve Jesus because you think you're going to make up for your sin. You can't do that. Serve Him out of love. Serve Him because sin doesn't pay. Serve Him because He is your true Savior, because He is your true Lord. Will you bow with me to pray? Lord Jesus, I don't have the words to express proper gratitude for what you've done. But I would ask this, please, Jesus, please, help us get it. Help us understand your mercy and your grace. Help us see your perfection and our need to follow you. Help us worship you and take the gospel, the good news of your grace, to the nations. That is our prayer. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.